What's up, everyone, and welcome back to Down the Line. This is episode number 126. You're listening to this recording on Thursday, November 9th. That's when we're recording this episode number 126 of Down the Line, right around 2.30 in the afternoon here on the West Coast. It's a great day to be alive, Brevin, and uh, as always, joined by the one and only Brevin Honda. So much to get down into this week as uh, we've actually had the start of a uh, another sport uh, pretty much get going this week as well, and obviously uh, so much more to recap. Yeah, it feels like another busy week is just about to start. Um, obviously, we got Thursday Night Football in a few hours, then we get this whole weekend of sports, another weekend of college football another weekend of nba um tomorrow is another night of the in-season tournament action and group play going on so plenty of things um going on this weekend in addition to um everything we got in the nfl another game in uh, europe this week as well yeah good point so much going on to preview this weekend and you're absolutely right um can't wait to get down into it all but first, let's start with our weekly segment here, and that's how we begin every show with our Fast Five. And today we're going to start with number one, and that is college basketball. I mentioned earlier we had the start of a, a new sport officially where we saw both men's and uh, women's college basketball tip off all throughout the country. So many student-athletes getting back into action this past Monday. Great to see it at every level, not just Division One. Um, but we even had some major upsets on day one here at the Division One level. Let's start with some men's basketball here. Number four, Michigan State falling to James Madison University by a score of 79-76 of East Lansing. And on the women's side, you had the defending national champion, number one ranked LSU, upset by number 20, Colorado, 92-78, the score there. So some really surprising results here, Brevin. Yeah, it would have been also a crazy night for the San Diego State Aztecs. They had defeated Cal State Fullerton, but at one point their lead was only one. Yeah. Um, early in the second half, I think it was like thirty nine, thirty eight, and then they just the Aztecs turned it on and not be one of these two teams that were on the losing end as a ranked team. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. Even with San Diego State, I mean. You know, this is a period where teams are still figuring it out. I mean, this is the first time they're on the floor. And, the, I mean, even last season with the Aztecs, I mean, what, one thing I think about is, you know, what happened in Maui, just the way that they kind of crumbled in those games. But then, you know, just kind of showing the resilience throughout the season, making it to the national championship game, anything can happen. Um, but with that being said, it's still important to build on your resume early on. So, We'll see if any more upsets happen even here today, Brad. I mean, it, it, it kind of feels surreal that we're going to have basketball on pretty much every day here on out for quite some time. Until June when we get the NBA Finals. Yeah. So plenty of basketball here on the slate for our calendar. And also we're going to be talking about it, obviously, throughout the year here on Down the Line as well. So we'll keep you updated next week on anything notable related to college basketball. We're going to stick with that with our second point of the Fast Five here. And we're going to get down into UConn and more specifically their women's team. The return of college basketball also bringing the return of one of the best in the game, women's phenom Paige Beckers, former AP Player of the Year, scored her first points in 584 days. She put up eight points, seven rebounds, four assists, since tearing her ACL, uh, obviously way back when, 
And the Yukon Huskies look really good so far this season, Brevin. I mean, having Beckers alongside, you know, is obviously going to be a lift for any team. But with a 102 to 58 win, that's really encouraging. Yeah, it helps when you get one of your top players back for the number two team in the country, um, you know, and just trying to get back on top to continue this. It feels like generation on generational dominance in dynasty in women's college hoops. Absolutely. And, you know, Beckers has been a, a big part of what UConn has been able to accomplish in recent years. Um, obviously, uh, you know, a big win coming yesterday. I do want to mention they did beat Dayton in that game, but upcoming games for them, they're playing on uh, this upcoming Sunday against NC State on the road. Another big test for them early in the season comes the next Thursday. They're going to host number 14 ranked Maryland. So early test here for Paige Beckers and this UConn team looking to um, get back on the top here for women's college basketball. All right, let's move on now. Number three here for our Fast Five. It's going to be our new college football playoff rankings. They were released on Tuesday, that being November 7th. The top eight stayed the exact same as last week. So we kind of give you an update on the first reveal Last week in our show, episode number 125, go ahead and listen to that if you haven't already. But this top eight stays the same. That is Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, and Florida State leading the way, respectively. That's followed by number five, Washington, Oregon, Texas, and Alabama. Yeah, these rankings pretty much tell you, um, you know, the the less games that you lose, the higher you're going to be up. Um on this playoff ranking, as we pretty much see, the top five teams are undefeated. The next six have one are one lost teams with teams like Oregon and Texas and Alabama. And then after that, you get your two lost teams. Um, Oregon, Tennessee, Missouri dropped two spots from last week. Um, Oklahoma was the team that dropped the most, um, dropping eight spots. The team that Roseland, uh saw the high, their highest jump was Oklahoma State. Jumping from twenty-two to to fifteen. Yeah, so obviously we've seen some changes beyond that. The top eight, as you mentioned, Brevin, but we're going to see what happens this week. A lot of good games coming up here on the slate for our college uh, football weekend here coming up. We even got some games today. Number eleven, Louisville is hosting Virginia, so Louisville expected to come out on top in that game. But obviously, so much more happening. Saturday morning, you got Alabama playing Kentucky. That's always a tough one. The big matchup of the day is going to be number two, Michigan, taking on on number nine, Penn State. So that is going to be a massive game with big implications there. Uh, A couple other good games as well. Tennessee playing Missouri. You got uh, number 13, Utah. They are visiting number five-seeded Washington. So we're going to see if the Huskies stay undefeated. And then you got Ole Miss, number 10 in the country. They're going to visit... Georgia, number one overall still in the AP poll, obviously not the uh, college football uh, playoff ranking, but they are number one in the AP poll. Um, So important to kind of give that distinction there as well, but a great slate set for this weekend in college football, no doubt about that. Um, We'll keep you updated next week on the changes that happened to the CFP rankings in the top four, if any. Yeah, a couple other big matchups. Late Saturday night, you get um, you get a basketball matchup on a, a basketball rivalry on gridiron between Duke and North Carolina. Mm. 
Um, a couple of teams over 500 there overall in an ACC matchup, and then a Pac-12. Caleb Williams in USC uh, travels to Oregon um, and take on the Ducks. Absolutely. That's going to be a fantastic game there. Moving on now, let's go to number four here within our fast five. And I really want to key in on the Arizona Cardinals here today for our fourth point, and that being their injury updates because they are very notable and uh, they are kind of changing uh, your fancy football lineups or they're changing how the Arizona Cardinals look on the gridiron, as you mentioned, Brevin. And, you know, big implications here for the Cardinals moving forward. We're going to see if they ultimately compete for getting that number one overall pick. But Kyler Murray, set to return back in the lineup, could potentially change that. He's expected to make his first start of the season against the Falcons this weekend. And that is his first start since suffering an ACL injury last December. And another big change in the Cardinals' backfield could be James Conner, the starting running back, could potentially return. He was reinstated from the IR, and his 21-day practice window has officially been activated. So Conner can make his first start since dealing with a knee injury back in Week 5. And this is also notable for the Cardinals because leading up to that point when he got hurt, they were one of the better rushing teams in the league. 5.4 yards per carry from Connor, And having these two back within this offense, I guess without Cliff Kingsbury calling the plays, could be interesting. Yeah, if you think about this Cardinals team, how important those two pieces are. I mean, even, I mean, James Connor, you know, the biggest or I say the only win for the Cardinals came against the team that was, again, that's over 500 right now in the Dallas Cowboys earlier in the year, beat them 28-16. That was with Josh Jobs. Uh, Josh Jobs as quarterback. Um, that was James Conner as well, um, getting 14 carries for 98 and a touchdown. Yeah, I mean, he's been the guy all year long, James Conner has been for the Cardinals. And when he comes back, I'm sure he's going to absolutely show that off and you know the Cardinals will be in a much better spot with those two in their backfield we'll see if it actually happens this weekend officially it seems like Kyler is going to play James Conner we're not necessarily sure yet but we're excited to see both of them back here within the foreseeable future at the very least yeah you'll be seeing James Conner back in my fantasy lineups in the next couple of weeks yeah absolutely as he should be mm-hmm. and maybe even certain Kyler Murray as well yeah <laughs> I like it. All right, number five here within our fast five, we're going to conclude with this. The father of Liverpool FC forward Luis Diaz, he was released today, 12 days after his kidnapping by a guerrilla warfare group based in Colombia, down in South America. Now, this comes after Diaz scored a goal in the fifth minute of stoppage time against Luton Town this weekend. He secured a huge point for Liverpool in that draw. After he scored, Diaz lifted his jersey. He wore an undershirt that's that said, freedom for Papa. So that officially happened today. He and his mother are safe. Um, Luis Diaz is obviously very relieved at this news. And it, it's fantastic to hear after the story drew some big international attention. Brevin, I'm not sure if you kind of heard about this over the course of the past week or even today. But I think, you know, this is... Uh, this is big to for, for Luis Diaz, obviously the safety of his family and uh, for his loved ones. But I mean, just uh, the best outcome here possible for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think about how big Luis Diaz has been. Um, 
in the Premier League for Liverpool, and it was tough seeing first hearing about um, the kidnapping and um, mm-hmm. kind of relieved that this 12-day, as the AP put it, ordeal um, yeah. is over. Yeah, definitely a serious situation there, but yeah, happy that they're all safe, and um, I'm sure that we're going to be seeing a statement from Luis Diaz uh, coming here soon, and I wouldn't be surprised if he scores again uh, this upcoming weekend as well, because that's what he's been doing all season long, as you alluded to, Revan. So good to hear that uh, Luis Diaz uh, Sr. is doing well. All right, let's switch gears here, and we're going to transition to Major League Baseball. And over the course of the past couple weeks, we've been talking about coaching updates. We've had a lot more this week, Revan, and they've all come at a time in which um, teams are trying to settle down and, and make some decisions on their future. And plenty of teams have done that as of this week. Let's start with this. On Monday, we had Stephen Vogt being named the new manager of the Cleveland Guardians. So he was named the 45th manager in Guardians history. He succeeds Terry Francona, who recently recently retired. And Stephen Vogt is getting his first shot. The uh, former catcher is looking to make a make an impact here. Yeah, um, just tells you how key former catchers are. Um, as a baby league manager, you know, obviously we've seen uh, names like Mike Matheny, you get Bob Melvin, um, Bruce Bochy as well. Um, there's so many different catchers that are managers in today's game. Um, and you see that here, um, a new one to to that class and Steven Vogt. And, you know, it's just the awareness that these players have um, for the game. I mean, we think about Steven Vogt, for example, I mean, one of his best moments was actually his final day of his career, hitting a home run um, in Oakland um, in his final game. And you see him two years later now being um, an MLB manager. Just tells you just how how much awareness catchers have in today's game. You know, so they can not just see the whole field, but you think about catchers being able to control a pitch staff, you know, both relievers and starters alike you know their awareness the connection that they got to have with their infielders um on pickoff attempts and caught stealing attempts and even the outfielders and you know the relationships they have so um you know it's uh continues that class of catchers um being a managers in major league baseball yeah great point there i'm excited to see how he does in his first season and yeah, crazy to think, like you mentioned, that, that moment that he had last, uh, you know, game of his career that that we all saw um, on the last day of the season. I mean, just incredible to see that. And uh, we're going to be excited to see him back out there. And he's got a good team to manage as well. He's set up in a good situation for sure. Yeah, names like Jose Ramirez at the top. We're going to talk about Andres, Andres Jimenez in a little bit um, within that infield, infield. And then you had some of the Younger pieces on that team, and Josh Naylor possibly, Cal Quantrill, uh, Emmanuel Classe at the back end. Absolutely. So big moves there coming out of the AL Central. And in the NL Central, you know, plenty happening there as well because we had some reports come out on Monday saying that Craig Council is not returning to the Milwaukee Brewers organization. And he is uh, headed to a team that already has a manager. So that team would turn out to be the Cubs. 
And he would become the manager of the Chicago Cubs. It was announced on Monday to replace David Ross. So the Cubs go ahead. They make this decision. And uh, if I was a Brewers fan, not sure how I'd feel about it, but I definitely wouldn't be too happy. Yeah, this was interesting. Um, You know, an interesting stretch, you know, on Twitter or on X, because this was moments after the Stephen vote. I think this might have been a couple of hours after the Stephen vote um, announcement. Um, for the Guardians, and then we hear that Craig Council's. We knew that we, there is a possibility that Craig Council wasn't going to return to Milwaukee; that he might retire, take a one-year break. Turns out that he's just moving teams within the division and um, going out to be the Cubs. And you know, the Cubs are in a prime opportunity to be complete buyers um, the rest of the soft season. Whether it's Shohei Otani, whether it's um, one of the top pitchers in Japan. Um, you know, on top of this free agent market, you think about the moves that they made over the last couple of years, getting Seiya Suzuki, Dansby Swanson, um, just adding to the piece of possibly trying to get to back to where they were just seven years ago, um, uh, winning the World Series. Absolutely. That's a key point for them. And, you know, I think they're in a good position to do so, especially if they do make additions and some of those names like you threw out there, brother. I mean, anything is possible here. But, yeah, I think the Cubs are in a great position here moving forward. We'll see if that actually comes into fruition. But with uh, Craig Council now in Chicago, there is a new manager moving elsewhere uh, in the NL, um, not becoming a – not switching the roles of manager for a new team, I should say, but uh, he is moving elsewhere within his own city. On Monday, the New York Mets – uh, it was announced that they will hire Yankees bench coach Carlos Mendoza as their new manager, replacing Buck Walter here. Uh, Brevin, thoughts on this move? Yeah, um, he gets to stay in the Big Apple. I think the team announced this. Um, can't remember if they did. Um, I'm checking Twitter right now if they hmm. had announced this move. Um, I'm not quite seeing it. Um, but it tells you just, you know, how important and how much Carlos March, Carlos Mendoza has been moving up the uh, coaching ranks here. Um, and you see that now earning a, earning a job to be uh, the head of a team, um, in the midst, a team that won just 101 games just two years ago and was, um, a playoff team. And so you're hoping that this team can get back on track here. Um, 2024 with guys like possibly Pete Alonso, Francisco Lindor, Francisco Alvarez, um, you know, a healthy Edwin Diaz at the back end of that bullpen. And you think about some of those starting pitchers as well with, um, Carlos Carrasco, Kodai Senga, um, just to name a few. Absolutely. And you mentioned Carlos Mendoza being hired in New York now for the Mets to become their new manager. Well, before that was officially announced, uh, that report, I should say, he was one of four reported finalists, Mendoza was, for the Padres managerial vacancy, along with some other candidates, Benji Gill and Phil Nevin, as well as interim candidates, uh, internal here, I should say, Ryan Flaherty and Mike Schilt. So uh, since then, David Ross has reportedly also been added within the mix of potential managers here. Um or I should say candidates that could potentially end up in San Diego. But like I mentioned before, um, 
right now for the Padres, as it stands, the group of candidates, Benji Gill, Phil Nevin, Ryan Flaherty, and Mike Schilt, and then David Ross, as I just mentioned. Nevin being the most recent candidate, I believe, being interviewed today by the Padres. So we'll see if that happens. But, I mean, not only, you know, this group of five candidates that I just threw out there, Brevin, for the Padres, but also uh, Carlos Mendoza being considered. What does that say about the Padres kind of search for their new manager and kind of what they're looking for? I think it tells you that they're trying to find their guy that they want to manage this team. You know, they're not settling for someone that they don't want. You have to remember, this is a team that wanted Bob Melvin um, two years ago, that wanted Jace Tingler over Ron Washington, for example. Yeah. And so, you you know, they're going to take their time, go through the process of what he's going to manage this team. I mean, you have to remember... The um, the Padres, the only coaching news that we had got over the last few days was that um, Padres pitching coach Ruben Nable is going to be a part of this coaching staff in 2024. Um, that's what um, GM AJ Preller said during the GM meetings this past week. And so it's going to, um, just like what we saw from when Bob Melvin was hired, um, you know, Ruben Abel, the pitching coach was already named before the manager was. So that's kind of, we're going to see that cycle once again, this time around with this new manager and hopes of taking to the Padres to their first World Series. Yeah, I think that's or, key. Or their first World Series title. Right. And that's what's key is, you know, can Preller find the right guy? He's going to take his time. He's going to do his due diligence because he knows that his job is potentially under fire here so yep. you know mm-hmm. what it's for the Padres going all in on their guy whoever that may be and I guess we'll see what happens with that ultimate decision I mean obviously like I said interviews still underway and it could be a little bit longer until we actually hear a decision but uh any guesses on who you think maybe they could go with I don't know I feel like just because of the internal canons I think about Mike Schilt I mean you think about I think he was a manager of the year, at least one year in St. Louis, uh, when they had won the division with players like um, Paul Goldschmidt, Yadier Molina, um, Nolan Arenado. You think about that experience. Benji Gill, it seems like, is what a lot of fans have liked. I mean, the president of Mexico even endorsed Benji Gill over this past week. So, um, And we haven't heard United States President Joe Biden endorse anybody. So... We'll have to see once uh, this announcement gets made. Probably sometime next week, I think, is what AJ Preller targeted. Um, So we'll find out definitely before next weekend um, who the next Padres manager is going to be. Going to be. Absolutely. And going a little north here, let's talk about the Angels because they were the most recent team to announce a new manager hiring. And that is Ron Washington. You threw that name out a little bit earlier here, Revan. And he is now going to Anaheim. The 71-year-old becomes the oldest current manager in the league. So he is moving from the Braves bench manager, uh, or I should say third base coach role, now to becoming a manager yet again. His uh, last stint as manager was with the Texas Rangers from 2007 to 2014, in which he won two AL pennants with 664 wins. Yeah. I think the biggest thing about this is this is going to help the infielder so much. You think about 
the infielders that have played for Juan Washington in the past, you think about how good Austin Riley's been, Ozzy Albies, Matt Olson this past year. You think about Dansby Swanson. You know, this is one of the best infielder infielding coaches that we have in the league. Um, you know, you put Bobby Dickerson in that mix as well. Um, there's just so many, but you think about just even the little fundamentals that you see uh, Ron Washington working on with the players. It's not necessarily hitting ground balls at to each position on the field. It's just simple, um, you know, just working on short hops, you know, all those different things. You see those um, before BP, and I think it's going to help a lot of these different players, whether it's the young guys on the Angels team or even some of the veterans and maybe guys like Anthony Rendon. Absolutely. That's what's going to be key. And I think, you know, the name that stands out the most, like you said, Zach Neto, man. I mean, he's mm-hmm. going to be yep. the key guy here to develop. And, you, you know, I think what's what's important is getting that stability in the infield. You know, who, who's going to solidify those spots filling in there? I think what's important here moving forward, I mean, I don't know what this team is necessarily going to do because you think about all the guys that they traded for last season. I mean, you could essentially go with several different guys at first base, really, if you wanted to here moving forward in the future. But I'm not entirely sure what that's going to be. Regardless of that, I think they're in a good position here uh, to get the guys they want, um, develop them at a high level. And I think infield is definitely a focus because you think about that outfield right now, Mickey Moniak, Mike Trout holding things down out there right now. You also got Taylor Ward, who's been very serviceable as of late. And just that infield, man. That's what's going to be key. You got Nolan Chanel. He got some playing time here uh, near the tail end of the season. Who knows if he's going to get another shot. But in regards to development, I think these young guys are really going to prosper. And you're absolutely right, Brevin. Uh, I think the future could be exciting. Um, It just depends on a lot of factors. But I think having Ron Washington as your manager brings you a lot of stability in that area. And I like it. Last year, the Angels recorded the seventh most errors in 95, tied with the Chicago White Sox leading the way uh, were the two teams that we saw in the World Series. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks had 56 errors, and the Rangers had 57. So, you know, it tells you how pivotal defense really is. You got the Twins right there behind them. Uh, a few spots later, you get teams like the Blue Jays, the Orioles, the Mariners, who were in the hunt till final week of the year, the Padres are right there, um, the Rays and the Dodgers. So tells you how important defense really is, especially for, um, especially for all the rule changes that we saw that were implemented um, here in twenty twenty three. Absolutely. All right, let's move on now, and Brevin, we're going to get down to our Gold Glove winners. We had those announced on this past Sunday, November fifth. So. We already broke down our nominees in uh, in the past couple weeks, and now we finally have these winners announced. Let's start here with the National League. Very competitive here, really at every position. Let's get things going at pitcher. We had Jesus Lazardo from the Marlins, Taiwan Walker from the Phillies, and Zach Wheeler also from the Phillies as your nominees for pitcher. Zach Wheeler ultimately wins that award here, and that is his first Gold glove of his career, Zach Wheeler, a huge honor for him. He became the fourth Philly pitcher to win a gold glove, joining Jim Cott um, back in both 1976 and 1977, uh, Bobby Shantz in 64, and the most recent Phillies pitcher to win a gold glove was Steve Carlton, 
um, back in 1981. Um, yeah, it's just one of the most consistent pitchers in the game and uh, gets rewarded with a gold glove. Absolutely. Moving on now, we had our nominees out of the National League for catcher, that being Patrick Bailey from the Giants, JT Realmuto from the Phillies, and Gabriel Moreno from the Diamondbacks. Well, it was ultimately Moreno who took it for his first gold glove of his career, and probably not the last either, Revan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gabriel Moreno, just 23 years old, when his first um, gold glove became the sixth youngest catcher to win his first gold glove. He led uh, MLB catchers this year and with 20 defensive run saves, became the first D-backs catcher um, to win a gold glove and did it with only 19 major league games behind the plate entering this uh, season. Absolutely. And another Diamondback who claimed a gold glove was at the first base position was Christian Walker. He edged out Carlos Santana of the Brewers and Freddie Freeman of the Dodgers to win his second straight gold glove. So you see big representation here from Arizona, Gabriel Moreno and Christian Walker for your catcher and first base spots respectively here as your gold glove winners. Yeah, Christian Walker, um, second straight year he's claiming um, the gold glove at first base joins um, Paul Goldschmidt as the only two uh, as the only Diamondbacks first baseman to to win a gold glove. Um, Paul Goldschmidt won it 2013, 15, and 17. Uh, Christian Walker led all major league first basemen with 11 outs above average. At second base, you had Hassan Kim from the Padres, Nico Horner from the Cubs, and Bryson Stott from the Phillies here. We'll touch on Hassan Kim in a little bit, Brevin, but Nico Horner claims the first gold glove of his career here, edging out Hassan Kim and Bryson Stott here. Uh, a huge honor for the Cubs, as you mentioned. They're uh, young guys here moving forward. He's going to be a, a huge piece. Yeah, you think about what we talked about earlier with um, having um, their new manager and Craig Council, and you know, you think about how good Nico Horner's been up the middle. It's been a, a solid double play deal one of the probably more underrated ones um in major league baseball and they get record both of them will get recognized which we'll talk about in a, a couple of minutes but Nico Horner was tied with Bryce Terang for the league lead among second baseman with 12 defensive run saves becomes the fifth second baseman to win a gold glove joining Darwin Barney in 2012 the most recent uh Ryan Sandberg who won this award consecutively from 1983 to 1991 Glenn Beckert from in 1968 and Ken Hubs in 1962. Absolutely. And you think about uh, what else is a part of the National League infield here. Uh, let's go to shortstop now. You had Francisco Lindor from the Mets, Ezekiel Tovar from the Rockies, and Dansby Swanson up for the Gold Glove Award at shortstop. Well, another cup on this list as Dansby Swanson takes it. He claims a huge award here. And that also uh, is going to mark, um, I believe, the second straight gold glove that he's going to receive here, Brevin. Yeah, this was um, this was pretty close. I mean, you think about players who moved teams um, in 2023 um, entering the year. James B. Swanson was part of that, kind of like that trio with with um, Zayner Bogarts and Trey Turner. And now here at shortstop, you get to see James B. Swanson 
Winning gold gloves, set a career high with 18 defensive runs saved, recorded 20 outs above average, which led all shortstops. He's the fourth uh, Cubs shortstop to win a gold win a gold glove, joining Javier Baez uh, three years ago, Don Kessinger, who, who went back-to-back in 1969 and 1970, and Ernie Banks in 1960. Another good defensive team um, in 2023 as a whole. Absolutely. Following Swanson there at shortstop, let's go to third base now. You had Cabrian Hayes up for this award, Austin Riley, and Ryan McMahon. Cabrian Hayes, obviously, of the Pirates, Riley of the Braves, and McMahon of the Rockies. But it was Hayes who came out on top here. He claims the first gold glove of his career, and uh, he is one of the better young players here for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that's showing. <laughs> yeah, he was a he was a finalist last year for um, this award, and it helps when you don't have to go up against Nolan Arenado, who's won this award the last 11 years before that. And so Hayes was finally able to break through. Obviously, it helps when you don't have Arenado. It doesn't. It helps when you don't have to go up against Manny Machado um, mm-hmm. in 2023 at that position. But um, Key Brian Hayes, you think about how good that left-sided midfield is when healthy, when paired with O'Neill Cruz at shortstop. Um, Key Brian Hayes led all third baseman with 17 outs above average, 21 defensive runs saved. Um, he's the first Pirates third baseman to win a gold glove. Wow. Huge honor there for Brian Hayes. Congratulations to him for coming out on top with that. Let's move on now to left field in the National League. we got David Peralta from the Dodgers, Eddie Rosario of the Braves, and Ian Happ of the Cubs. And another Cub, Ian Happ, he comes out on top. He wins this award. And this is massive for Hap because it's his second straight gold glove. He's a huge piece of this team. Yeah, he led all MLB left fielders with 12 assists. He's kind of been one of those players who is thought to be on the trading block over the last few years just because we didn't know how well this well, this Cubs team was going to do year in and year out. And, I mean, we saw this Cubs team, you know, be really well at times this season, and he was a part of it. Um Ian Happ's just the third Cubs outfielder with multiple gold gloves, joining Jason Hayward, who won it in 2016 and 2017, as well as Andre Dawson, um, 1987 and 1988. Great honor there for Ian Happ, and he's showing that he's one of the best in the game. Let's move to center field. You have Alec Thomas from the Diamondbacks, Brenton Doyle from the Rockies, and Michael Harris II from the Braves. It was Brenton Doyle here who came out on top, and Brevin, he put together quite a season. And uh, for Brenton Doyle, it's a huge honor for him because it's also his first gold glove. Yeah, another rookie, um, the second NL rookie to to take home a gold glove. And I think it's even more critical because this is when you're playing in Colorado and you realize how big that outfield is, I think that just raises those stakes even more. Um, You know, that at at course field for 81 games. Um, Brenton Doyle led all of baseball in the fielding run value of 21. He became the sixth, sixth rookie outfielder winning to win a gold glove, joining Tommy Agee in 1966, Fred Lynn in 1975, Ichiro in 2001, Stephen Kwan last year, and then Luis Robert um, three years ago. Great honor there for Brent Doyle and a bright future head for this Rockies team, having him alongside and as a part of that roster. Let's move to right field now. Uh, we 
had a discussion about this a couple weeks ago, Brevin, if uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. was going to come out on top, and he did. Tatis beating out Mookie Betts from the Dodgers and Lane Thomas of the Nationals and some Padre representation here with Tatis claiming his first gold glove, and it comes in right field. Yeah, it would have been hard to believe that four years ago when Fernando made his debut that we thought he'd be winning an outfield gold glove compared to an infield gold glove. But, you know, when he moved from shortstop to right field to begin the year, we we didn't know what to expect. And we just saw him continue to make the right make, make those right plays that he needed to make. You know, get not just getting runners out, but you think about just keeping runners um, from taking that extra base. You know, he led all of MLB with 29 defensive runs saved. You know, having had an average arm strength of 96 miles per hour, which only trailed uh, Rockies rookie Nolan Jones in the, in the National League. His, um, you know, it, it continues that stretch of quality right, right fielders that we've seen in this Padres team, you know, that dates even back to Padres, or dates back to Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn. Absolutely. Great to see Tatis come out on top of that award. And another Padre claimed the Utility Award. We mentioned him earlier, and that's being Hassan Kim. He won the Utility Award from the National League, representing San Diego, and he edged out Tommy Edmond from the Cardinals and Mookie Betts once again here on this list. Hassan Kim, he is a Gold Glove winner there, and uh, it's a huge honor because it's his first as well. Yeah, first Asian-born player. Um, to win a gold glove and have you know, Padre fans must be happy because they beat out two Padres, beat out Mookie Betts at both positions as well. You think about Fernando in in right field now, Hassan Kim at the utility position, playing third base, playing shortstop, playing second base. Um, throughout throughout the year, he had 16 defensive runs saved, including 10 at second base, which was um just behind Horner and Bryce Terang, who had 12 and. Yeah, just a solid, really great season for Hassan Kim. As a lot of people felt, he was the team MVP um, for this entire year. Obviously, was the nominee for the Padres for the Heart and Hustle Award too. Yeah, absolutely. It's so deserved from Hassan Kim, and he is a utility player at heart. Heart, you I mean you put him anywhere, he'll get the job done, and he showed that this year as well. So, congrats to him. Congrats to all these award winners on here yeah. from the National League. Um, was there a biggest surprise that kind of sticks out to you here, Brevin, would you say? Um maybe maybe a catcher. Yeah. Um, because you think about um how well Patrick Bailey did this year this year, and then you think about just the veteran that we've seen in JT Ramudo uh behind the plate. I think that might have been the most surprising, but then again, all all these players um are deserving of of just how well they do um defensively. No doubt about that. So let's move on to the American League now. And with that being said, let's start the pitcher category once again. Jose Barrios, he won for the Toronto Blue Jays. He beat out Pablo Lopez from the Twins. And another twin on this list, Sonny Gray, to claim the award here. And it is the first of his career for Jose Barrios. Yeah. Jose Barrios joining Marcus Stroman and Ari Dickey as the only pitchers in franchise history to to win a gold glove, if you think about how well he was this year, posted a 3.65 ERA over 32 starts, which was a about a two-and-a-half run decrease from 2022 when he 
uh had an ERA above five uh, you know that that year and um you know it was just strong to see the way Jose Barrio pitched uh, this entire season and you saw that. Absolutely. Another first time Gold Glove winner coming from the catcher position. Texas Rangers starting catcher Jonah Heim. He won this award here, beating out Adley Rutschman from the Orioles and Alejandro Kirk from the Blue Jays. Jonah Heim put together such a solid season. Yeah, you're going to hear a lot of Texas among this, among his Gold Gloves. It's the first of, I think, three. Uh, yeah, first of three Rangers to win a Gold Glove. Uh, this season, which uh, set a franchise record uh, for most gold gloves in the same year. Jo- um, Jonah Heim, you know, obviously helped Texas get to the World Series and win that World Series, win that first title. Um, you know, led all AL backstops in fielding runs above average, according to Fangraphs, um, and joins Pudge Rodriguez and Jim Sumberg to, to win gold gloves. Obviously, Pudge Rodriguez is a Hall of Famer. Won it consecutively from 1992 to 2001, and then Jim Sumberg won it consecutively from 1976 to 1981. So maybe if uh, history repeats itself, maybe this is a another stretch of consecutive Gold Gloves for Jonah Heim. Yeah, absolutely could be. Um, I think he's got the talent to absolutely do so, and we're excited to see his bright future as well. Another guy with an incredible future. Speaking of. Also on the Rangers, Nathaniel Lowe winning his first gold glove, and he uh, got his award over Anthony Rizzo from the Yankees and Ryan Mountcastle from Orioles. Nathaniel Lowe and Jonah Heim representing Texas here and the Rangers organization. Yeah, this might also kind of be in the conversation of most improved first baseman or most improved defender. Uh, last year, in 2022, Nathaniel Lowe finished with minus 11 outs above average, which was the lowest among qualified first basemen, and uh, comes out this year and wins a gold glove. And it was just um, so important for this Rangers team to have that type of consistency defensively at a key position um, in the infield. Absolutely. Huge award there for Nathaniel Lowe in his career. Looking to make the next step here in the future as well. A name you brought up earlier, Brevin, was Andres Jimenez from the Cleveland Guardians, their starting second baseman. Well, he won his second straight gold glove with this award being announced over Mauricio Dubon of the Houston Astros and Marcus Simeon of the Texas Rangers. So we see a Ranger miss out on a gold glove here. We'll get to another one here shortly, but Andres Jimenez representing second base here for the American League. He's the gold glove winner. Yeah, he's the second player. To win multiple gold gloves at second base for Cleveland, joining Roberto Alomar, who won three straight from 1991 to 2001. This year, Andre Jimenez just pretty much continued to what he did at second base, the Keystone. Uh, 18 outs above average, 23 defensive runs saved, and en route to another gold glove um, on a shelf. Absolutely, and uh, so much talent here throughout the American League and another guardian that got some recognition here. A nominee for the Gold Glove at third base, Jose Ramirez. He actually missed out on this award. He and Alex Bregman of the Houston Astros. And that's because Matt Chapman from the Blue Jays won his fourth Gold Glove here 
claiming the third base spot from the American League. Yeah, I think it just tells you how good um this position is at third base, you know, whether names are on this um gold glove list or not, you know. Obviously in the National League we think about Nolan Arenado, Matt Chapman, or Nolan Arenado, Manny Machado, um both who weren't up for um that uh award. Obviously we know the great plays that they make and you think about even here at third base and you see Matt Chapman kind of revitalize what he did um previously. You know, this is I think it's fourth gold glove. Uh yeah, fourth gold glove, second third baseman in Blue's history to Win a gold glove joining Kelly Gruber in 1990. Matt Chapman leading all AL third baseman with 12 defensive runs saved this year. Upping that career total to 92 um, defensive runs saved since making that debut in 2017. Yeah, absolutely. He's been fantastic and great to see Orange County represented here from the American League. All right. Let's keep going here. Let's move on to shortstop. And let's get to uh, our nominees here. Corey Seager from the Texas Rangers. Another name there from Arlington. Carlos Correa from the Minnesota Twins. And you also had Anthony Volpe from the New York Yankees. Volpe gets the uh, award here, Brevin. Yeah, he became the youngest shortstop to win the honor um, at the this position in the American League, uh, surpassing San Diego and Alan Trammell. Back in 1980, who was 22 years old, uh, when he won it, um, beats him. Uh, Anthony Volpe beat Alan Trammell by, it was about 100, a little less than 100 days. Um, also became the second Yankee shortstop to win a gold glove, um, joining Derek Jeter, who won five from 2004 to 2006, and then went back-to-back again in 2009 and 2010. See some rookie representation there. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the outfield now. Let's start in left field. You got Austin Hayes from the Orioles, Stephen Kwan from the Guardians, and Dalton Varsho from the Toronto Blue Jays here on this list for left field. Stephen Kwan took his second straight gold glove here, and he's your award winner. Yeah, once again, you know, just just, just like we talked about Andre Tumenich, just consistency defensively for the Guardians. And, you know, that's part of, Terry Francona and the influence that he has you know it's not just how well you can hit the ball but how well you're a defender at the same time and Stephen Kwan you know at the top of that lineup for the most part maybe at the bottom depending on it um but defensively Stephen Kwan led uh major league left fielders with 16 defensive runs saved and and nine outs above average joins Kenny Lofton and Grady Sizemore as the only Cleveland outfielders to win multiple gold gloves Great honor there for Stephen Kwan. A huge glove award here for Kevin Kiermeyer out of center field. He beat out Julio Rodriguez from the Mariners and Luis Robert Jr. from the Chicago White Sox. His fourth glove, gold glove for Kiermeyer, his first since 2019, and he's the first Blue Jays outfielder to win a gold glove since Vernon Wells did so. Yeah, that was back in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when Vernon Wells capped off three straight from 2004 to 2006. Also to win, uh, also to win a gold glove in a Blue Jays uniform in the outfield with Sean Green in 99, Devon White from 91 to 95, and Jesse Barfield from 86 to 87 this year. Kevin Kiermeyer, uh, was, was tied for the league lead among center fielders with 18 DRS and 13 outs above average. And it's just 
another solid campaign for the veteran Kevin Kiermaier. Absolutely. Another uh, outfielder that claimed his award here is Adolis Garcia. He won his first Gold Glove Award. He uh, got the uh, honor over Kyle Tucker from the Astros and Alex Verdugo from the Red Sox. Yeah, we, when we think about Adolis Garcia, we think about the power that he brought to this Rangers team that helped them win a World Series, recording a career-high 39 home runs during the regular season, another eight during the postseason. And, but you think about what he did defensively. Um, and it was partially, this is um, credit to the arm that he provides. You know, an average arm strength of 93 miles an hour led to 11 assists and ranked ninth in the 95th percentile among qualified outfielders. Um, yeah, it became the uh, first career gold glove for Adolis Garcia and the fourth gold glove by an outfielder in Rangers history. So that's your outfield there. And for your utility player out of the American League, you had Mauricio Dubon with his first gold glove representing the Houston Astros. Zach McKinstry and Taylor Walls representing the Tigers and Rays, respectively, were your other nominees. But Mauricio Dubon gets his first. Yeah, the, you Mauricio Dubon playing pretty much every single day um, for that Astros team that reached another ALCS. Um, he's another first-time Gold Glover. He played at every position in the Astros infield except pitcher and catcher this season. The Definitely defining uh, utility man also played um, from center field throughout the season was slightly uh, was a slightly below average hitter, but most of his value coming defensively um, finished with five defensive runs saved um, at second base, as well as another two um, in the outfield played 616 and two thirds innings um, at second base this year. Yeah. He's a man who can really do it all. And he, he showed it why there and, uh, deserving winner there for the utility spot. So there you have it, your Gold Glove winners from the National and American League. One more time, you got Zach Wheeler, Gabriel Moreno, Christian Walker, Nico Horner, Cabrian Hayes, Dansby Swanson, Ian Happ, Brenton Doyle, Fernando Tatis Jr., and Hassan Kim from the National League. And from the American League, you have Jose Barrios, Jonah Heim, Nathaniel Lau, Andreas Jimenez, Matt Chapman, Anthony Volpe. Stephen Kwan, Kevin Kiermeyer, Adolis Garcia, and Mauricio Dubon. That wraps it up there. Your Gold Glove winners for 2023. Uh, we are going to look forward to our next award session for our Platinum Glove winners, the National League and American League uh, honorees. For that, will be announced tomorrow on Friday, November 10th. So uh, we'll keep you updated on that next week, but. Those are your Gold Glove winners. Uh, Revan, uh, before we move on here, any surprises you think from the American League? I think maybe Kevin Kiermaier. Just we think about, um, you know, kind of the ups and downs that he went through over the last couple of years. And for him to be back there taking on a couple of younger outfielders and to see him kind of regain that Gold Glove status in center field, it says a lot about the work that he was able to put in uh uh-huh, obviously during the off season, during the season to to beat out Julio Rodriguez, to beat out Luis Robert. Especially, you know, you think about Toronto, you know, something that we brought up before the season where those new field outfield dimensions with the walls and the different different heights that Toronto brought and for him to excel as well, you know, it says a lot about uh why he earned um his fourth gold glove. Yeah, 
Yeah, bringing him in was a great idea because no better guy to have out there in center field than Kevin Kiermeyer. He proved it there. Hmm. All right, let's move on now to our uh, BBWAA award finalists. So we had our uh, baseball riders here decide on uh, Jackie Robinson Rookie of the Year award winners here. Let's start with that. That winner is going to be announced on Monday, November 13th officially. So we'll bring you the result of that next week on down the line. But let's talk about these finalists here. Tanner Bibby coming from the American League. He is representing the Cleveland Guardians for a Rookie of the Year nominee. You also got Tristan Casas from the Boston Red Sox and Gunnar Henderson from the Baltimore Orioles. And from the National League, you got Corbin Carroll from the Arizona Diamondbacks, James Outman from the L.A. Dodgers, and Kodai Senga from the New York Mets. Revan, uh, what do you think about these nominees, and uh, who do you think could potentially come out on top? I think the AL is a little more tough to figure out. I think the favorite is still Gunnar Henderson. I feel like there's a favorite in every single um, category for um, each of the four awards. Um, but it just depends on how these voters valued certain statistics. Um, Gunnar Henderson, uh, who is number one prospect entering this season, recorded 28 home runs and 66 extra base hits, which led all rookies this year. Um, then you had Tristan Cassis, who had a great second half, um, who had, uh, he had a 175 wins created plus in the second half, which only trailed Matt Olson, Mookie Betts, and Ronald Cunha Jr. Um, he led all rookies with a 367 OBP. Um, you think about Tyner Beebe from the Guardians at a 2.98 area over 142 innings. He went five innings and not allowed um more than three runs in 23 of his 25 starts this year and uh also was one of eight pitchers with a sub three era to throw at least 100 innings so you see the consistency there um in his uh rookie season and then you think the national league and just how good those three players were Kodai Senga uh see has a little bit of experience pitching in Japan um but his rookie season here in the states Another 2.98 ERA total in with 200 plus Ks over 166 innings, uh, becoming just the third rookie in the wildcard era to finish with a sub three ERA and 200 Ks. Um, if you think about James Outman uh, from the Dodgers, first Dodgers rookie to hit 20 homers and steal 15 bases in a season. Um, and then you think about defensively doing it with the glove, having nine outs about average where most on the team, but I think the favorite here is Carvin Carroll, uh, 25 home runs, 54 stolen bases, the first 2050 campaign by a rookie in major league history. Um, you know, he's the first player rookie or, or otherwise to reach those marks with double digit triples as well. Um, you know, he's able to do it with his speed, um, and his power that mix was so key. Um, and why the D-backs were able to play the way he did and, even despite that slump that they had in July, get to the World Series. Absolutely. That's a big deal for them. I, I agree with you. I think Henderson and Carroll definitely stand out for the Rookies of the Year uh, in the American League and National League, respectively. So we'll see uh, the results of that when they come out on Monday. Manager of the Year, another award expected to be announced on Tuesday, the 14th. Some great candidates here. You got Bruce Bochy from the Rangers in the American League. Brandon Hyde of the Orioles, and you also got Kevin Cash listed as your finalist for American League Manager of the Year. 
From the NL, you got Marlins manager Skip Schumacher, Brian Snicker from the Braves, and Craig Council from the Brewers. Brevin, what do you think about this? Uh, these names are here. Yeah, you think about, I'm pretty sure, um, besides Skip Schumacher, all these teams won at least 90 games. And But with Sh- Skip Schumacher, um, you know, with Skip Schumacher, um, this was a team that had a negative run differential, but still got to the playoffs. And so I think that really helps there for um, him there. You think about um, Bruce Bochy coming out of retirement this year, leading the Rangers to um, first World Series title. Um, Kevin Cash and Brandon Hyde recording, both of them recording at least 99 wins this year. You think about with the Orioles, um, the rebounds that they had winning in American League Best 101 games. Um, the most since 1979. Um, you think about Brian Snitker, 106 wins this season. Um, yeah, you know, this is a really, or I should say, 104 wins, excuse me, off by two games, but uh, mm-hmm. one, one again, uh, nationally east by 14 games this year. And you think about Craig Council, uh, just another consistent season. For the Brewers, the fifth time in the last six years, the Brewers have gone to play further, deeper into October with 92 wins and another division title. It's just consistency all around for uh, in this category. Absolutely. I think, you know, great names here on this list, like you mentioned. And we'll keep you updated next week as well, American League and National League. Uh, some great names here who led their teams to just fantastic campaigns this year. And obviously you see Bruce Bochy here representing the American League, the job that he was able to do. And another award here that is going to be announced on Wednesday, the 15th, we got the Cy Young Award winners. And we're going to see two names here from the American League, National League, each uh, from their own respective leagues we represented. But let's start with our finalists from the American League. Garrett Cole from the Yankees. Blue Jays have Kevin Gosman here representing them. And Sonny Gray from the Minnesota Twins are your pitchers from the American League. Cole, Gosman, and Gray. And then nationally, you got Zach Gallen from the Arizona Diamondbacks. Logan Webb from the San Francisco Giants. Lake Snell from the San Diego Padres on here too. So an NOS affair here for the National League between all of these guys. Uh, who do you think is going to come out on top here for the American League and National League, Brevin? Yeah, I when the the awards came out, um, when this was the finals were announced, I thought, well, even when the season ended, you know, you probably think you probably thought that Blake Snell probably was a favorite in the National League, and then you hear about how much voters value innings pitched. I mean, Blake Snell only threw 180 innings compared to Logan Logan Webb and Zach Allen north of 200. I don't know how much that's going to take into account, but. Just for how dominant Blake Snell was here um, this season, um, he's probably uh, probably the favorite. I mean, 2.25 ERA, rack, uh, 234 Ks, NL Pitcher of the Month in June and September is 31.5 strikeout percentage, ranked second in the majors, you know, trying to, trying to become just one of very few to win a Cy Young about the American League. And the National League, I think, too, in the American League. This favorite should be Garrett Cole, uh, 15-4 and record, 2.62 ERA, which led 
uh, the the uh, AL also had 209 innings pitched. Um, no one had a better whip. Walks plus hits divided by innings pitched. Um, this season. Um, yeah, just four earned runs over his final five starts. I think what Kevin Gosman's being a finalist tells you just how good that pitching staff is. It's not just Jose Barrios who we talked about winning the Gold Glove, but it's just how good that pitching staff is. And then Sonny Gray, the dominance that he had all season long here, um, helping them win the AL Central title. Um, you know, uh, seven earned runs over his final seven starts, ranking second in the AL and the ERA. Um, just a really quality year for um, Sonny Gray. And then and the, the other two nominees in the National League, really the National League West, I should say, Zach Gallen, um, you know, 210 innings pitched, 220 Ks, uh, included a 44 and a third inning scoreless streak, which was the seventh longest in ALL history. Um, and then you think about Logan Webb, 216 innings over 33 starts. Um, 194 Ks. Um, so yeah, it just depends on what these voters value, um, to help figure out this award. But, um, it's just quality 14 and 9 for Blake Snell, Logan Webb. I don't know if the voters will want to give a Cy Young to a, to a pitcher that had a losing record. Logan Webb, yeah. 11 and 13, 3.25 ERA. Um, <laughs> With Zach Allen, 17-9, the best record, but uh, the highest area among the three with the 3.47. So it'd be interesting to see what these voters do um, and where the state of the game is, especially at the pitching, because you're able to see it, um, especially with all four of these awards with their spe- uh, respective stats. Absolutely. I mean, all these guys completely dominated in their own right this year as well. So that's going to be interesting to see what the uh, uh, voters Go with there, but most valuable player. I mean, for some, pretty easy to decide on here, right? I mean, the winner is going to be announced next Thursday, so uh, we still have to wait a week until then. But for the American League, we have, of course, your expected nominees here: Shohei Otani from the Los Angeles Angels, Corey Seager from the Texas Rangers, another Ranger on here, Marcus Simeon. Those two guys leading their infield, and they were very deserving to be here listed as finalists for AL MVP. For the National League, you got Ronald Acuna Jr. from the Braves, Mookie Betts here once again from the Dodgers, and Freddie Freeman from the Dodgers as well. Um, I mean, the, all these guys had great seasons, Brevin, and it's it's hard to really decide on the one, but, I mean, for the American League, I, I think it's pretty much set in stone. Do you have any idea for the National League? I mean, I think the favorite there is Ronald Acuna Jr. I mean, yeah. the first, the first player in MLB history with a forty homer, seven seventy steal season. Uh-huh. I mean, when he, uh, forty one homer, seventy three stolen bases. He also led the National League in runs, hits, OVP, uh, on base plus slugging, total bases, wins, uh, weighted runs created plus. Was named the NL Player of the Month three times. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I think Ronald Acuna is the favorite here. Um, uh, you think about with Mickey Betts, he's got the opportunity to join Frank Robinson as the only player to be named MVP in both leagues since Mickey Betts won the a- on won this award on the AL side in 2018. That was the year the Dodger or the Mickey Betts and the Red Sox won the World Series. Mickey Betts hitting 307 this year at the plate, 
Mm -hmm. um, crushing uh, 39 home runs, which is a career high. Had 79 extra base hits, which ties a personal best. Um, Think about Freddie Freeman. He hit 331 this season. um, Only six points lower than Ronald Acuna Jr. 29 home runs, 410 on base percentage. So right around, right just in between Betts and Acuna. Slugging 567, the lowest of the three. So I really think this is Ronald Acuna Jr.'s to lose, and I feel like we have favorite on both sides with Acuna and Otani. But yep. you think about the other the two Rangers here for this MVP. It's for once we don't get we still get an AOS matchup for this AL MVP, but it's not Jordan Alvarez. It's the the uh, high money guys in Texas with Seager and Semyon. Um, Corey Seager. Um, you know, he was, I think Corey Seager, the thing that lacks his value is the injuries that he had this year that limited him 119 games. But, I mean, we saw the importance that he had 43 doubles, 33 homers for the second straight year, um, hard hit rate at 53.2%, which is, uh, from StatCast, um, personal best, um, that ranked 10th in the majors. And then you think about, his double play partner, Marcus Semien, 122 runs, which led the American League in the leadoff spot, had 100 RBIs, 185 hits, uh, 29 homers. Um, Marcus Semien played in every game this season. Uh, third time in the last four, he's done that. Um, yeah, it's just, um, just like I said, it's how you value, um, and how voters choose this, um, award. Definitely. It is all perspective for those voters, and we're going to see who comes out on top. I mean, Rookie of the Year, you got Manager of the Year, Cy Young, and MVP awards still all to be announced next week. Of course, like I mentioned before, we're going to let you know the award winners next week during our next episode, that being number 127 here on Down the Line, so stay tuned for that. We are going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we're going to get into the latest in the NFL. That includes the most recent injuries impacting the league. We're also going to give up our three up, three down ratings for week nine, preview week 10, and then also break down fantasy before ending in trivia. That's all coming up next here on Down the Line. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to Down the Line. This is episode number 126. We're recording this once again on Thursday, November 9th, just after 3.30 here on the West Coast in the afternoon. I'm Kyle Betts, joined by Brevin Honda, as always, and our first half broke down our Fast Five. We also got into our latest coaching updates in Major League Baseball, also broke down our Gold Glove winners from the American League and National League, and also got into our BBWAA Award finalists previewing the Jackie Robinson Rookie of the Year, Manager of the Year, Cy Young Award winner, and Most Valuable Player Award. All those being announced next week. Now we're going to get into some National Football League, and we're going to start with the latest injuries throughout the league. And two big ones happening here in uh, the NFC as we get started here. Minnesota Vikings running back Cam Akers 
tore his Achilles last week, and he is unfortunately out for the season. Yeah, this is tough to, especially, you know, K-Makers coming to Minnesota, middle of the year. Um, you know, it's just tough to see. I mean, obviously, K-Makers saw this when Daryl Henderson went out with his Achilles um, a couple of years ago. So um, now he gets to deal with this, and it was tough um, for him. Um, it's always tough when you get to see season-ending injuries that require long-term, that require surgery and then long-term rehab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Akers kind of rehab alongside Kirk Cousins and then try to, you know, help each other out as teammates yeah. through their recovery as well. Uh, another unfortunate injury that happened in the league, Daniel Jones from the New York Giants. Their quarterback, unfortunately, tore his ACL. He's out for the season. And so we are going to see Tommy DeVito as their starting quarterback for the foreseeable future until uh, Tyron Taylor comes back. Yeah, I think it's possible, too, that this Giants team can try and be playing for one of those top quarterbacks for the draft now, for sure. Um, You know, since you don't have your big money Daniel Dimes um, under center, you know, Colin plays now, and now that he's going to be out for at least a year, kind of similar on that same track as um, that we saw from Kyler Murray that we talked about earlier um, within our Fast Five. Absolutely. So two big names there, Cam Akers and Daniel Jones going down this week. Hopefully their recovery goes well. But let's kind of talk about what happened here in this week nine as well, Brevin. Let's get into our three up, three down. And I will start here. We're going to kick things off here with our three up. And my first point is involving a uh, player from the Houston Texans. I know that you have one for your first three up, Brevin, but mine had a little bit of a different role last week than he typically does. That's to say the least. You had uh, Dare Ogunbowale. He's the running back three, maybe even the running back four on the Houston Texans roster. Um, he, he thought he was going to have to run the ball against the Buccaneers, but at halftime, the Texans had to make a change of kicker, and he was the man for the job. Kaimi Fairbairn went down with a quad injury, and they went to Ogunbowale, and Ogumba Wale just absolutely killed it. He uh, had a field goal attempt with 8.48 left in the fourth quarter when Houston was facing a fourth and goal from the 11, and he hit that from 29 yards. He gave Houston a 33-30 to lead, and the, that was a big reason why the Texans came out on top of this game 39-37, uh, taking down uh, a really solid football team here in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and extending their losing streak. Yeah, you think about, we see kickers every single day, you know, 29 yards, it's nothing. But when you've got emergency kickers trying to hit 29-yard field goals, it's a lot different. There's a lot more pressure, but, you know, it's every team's got to have their emergency kickers ready. And you saw how ready Dyer Ungumbale was um, and helped the, the Texans get that win. You know, it really, like they say, every man plays a big part in these wins in the NFL. All right, for me, I'm going to take someone also within that Texans offense. I'm going to go with rookie, uh, rookie quarterback C.J. Stroud recorded 470 passing yards, which uh, set an NFL rookie record, five touchdown passes, including a game-winning drive um, with 46 seconds left and 
help the Texans get that big win um, over the Buccaneers, 39-37. Um, just really big performance. I think it was the QB1 in fantasy football this past week. 41.8 fantasy points in PPR. Um, you know, just being uh, definitely putting himself in the conversation if he not already did for NFL Offensive uh, Rookie of the Year. No doubt about that, Brevin. I love CJ Stroud. He's a great player, and he proved it. Hmm. And he's been proving it all year long. No doubt about that. Um, let's move on now. I'm going to pick my uh, second three up, and that is going to be Josh Dobbs, new Minnesota Vikings quarterback. Didn't know any of his, of his guys in uh, the huddle the other day as he made his first appearance for the Minnesota Vikings after Jaron Hall got concussed. And... Not much of a better job uh, job that he can do stepping up for his Vikings debut and just an incredible game. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, you had his head coach, Kevin O'Connell, relaying how these plays would be drawn out in his ear while he was given the play calls, and he made it happen. And in that game, he was fantastic. 20 of 30, 158 yards, two touchdowns in that game. He also had seven carries for 66 yards and a touchdown putting the team on his back and the Falcons blow another lead. Uh, they had uh, 28 points once again. Yeah. Just really <laughs> key there. Um, helping them get the win. All right. Um, for me, I'm going to go with the punters here. Give me a Raiders punter, AJ Cole. And at the beginning of the year, when we saw this matchup between the Raiders and the Giants, we thought, all right, this is going to be a, uh, we obviously we thought Josh McDaniels was going to be here. Jaron Waller facing his former team. We we didn't see any of them because obviously this was the first game without Josh McDaniels and Jaron Waller went on injury reserve because of that hamstring. And however, on top of the Raiders making history with um an African American at their ownership spot, their manager spot, um, and their GM spot, um, in the interim. With Sandra Douglas Morgan, team president, you get uh, Champ Kelly, the interim GM, and you get Antonio Pierce, the interim head coach. You also had history on the football field as well. A.J. Cole, their punter, recorded five punts that went a total of 318 yards. Um, one went inside the 22 touchback, 63.6 um, per punt on the average, including a Long punt of 69 yards. That 63.6 yards per punt average set the NFL record for the highest single game average in NFL history for punts. Uh, minimum four punts um, in a single game. So I got AJ Cole there. Helped the Raiders win 30-6 to over the Giants. Yeah, that's a great point. Special teams has such an impact on games. And we saw that plenty of moments this past weekend. So that's a great selection there. All right, I'm going to move on here, and I'm going to choose a guy that we haven't really heard from all season long, Keaton Mitchell. He uh, showed up, and he showed out for the Baltimore Ravens. His uh, first appearance here carrying the ball for the Baltimore Ravens, and he averaged 15 yards a carry, nine carries, 138 rushing yards, and a touchdown. He also had a catch in that game, and uh, this is a fantastic signing by this team. He Went to East Carolina, and he was an undrafted free agent. Signed, and now it, it looks like he has somewhat of a role, and maybe that could grow in the future. Yeah, such a big pickup um, and what he's been able to do, um, especially in a 
say a Ravens back a backfield that's not really solidified to be that RB one. Mm-hmm. Compared to especially compared to other teams. Definitely. All right. Uh, for my final pick here to round out our three up here, I'm gonna take the Pittsburgh Steelers here. Um, you know, even with Kenny Pickett, even with the play calling issues that people have had, this Steelers team is somehow five and three. We saw Deontay Johnson score his first touchdown on Thursday night football last week in yeah. like 700 days in like uh, 200 targets. Um, finally got in the end zone, helped uh the um helped the Steelers get that win last week. Another one possession game. I think all five of the Steelers' wins have come in one possession, one possession fashion, including last week defeating the Titans twenty to sixteen. Um, Deontay Johnson seven catches, ninety yards, and a touchdown. Um, yeah, so I got the Steelers on here. Um, obviously we know their defense with T.J. Watt, but seeing the offense come through, you know, with the way they did with uh, led by Deontay Johnson, so I got the Steelers to round out our three up. That's a great pick there to round out your three up. And so kind of recapping here very quickly, our three up here, I had Dari Ugubuale, Josh Dobbs, and Keith Mitchell, and Brevin with C.J. Stroud, A.J. Cole, and the Pittsburgh Steelers. All right, let's move to our three down. I'm going to start here with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as my first selection. They have not looked good as of late. They have lost four in a row now to this point, and uh, they were once in the NFC South pole position. That's no longer the case. They're now in third, and so um, we'll see what happens tonight with the Carolina Panthers. We'll see if they get their second win of the season. But Buccaneers trending downward here, and, uh, you know, if the Panthers end up winning tonight's game, they could be at jeopardy for uh, being in last place maybe even next week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just been tough right now for um, Baker Mayfield and that team. Um, Just to put up points – on the board, I think that's been the difficult thing. Minus nine among point differential. Um, just been a tough streak right now for the Buccaneers. Um, all right, for me, I'm gonna go with another struggling team right now. A team that has a longer losing streak. I think it's the longest losing streak in the NFL right now, and that's the Arizona Cardinals. I know we talked about the return of Kyler Murray and possibly eventually down the line the return of James Conner, but right now this Cardinals team, they're one and eight right now. That only win coming against the Cowboys in um you know minus eighty nine point differential, just hundred and fifty one points through nine games. Uh, last week getting shut out in Cleveland twenty seven to zero. Lost to the Rams twenty six to nine a few weeks ago. Um so yeah, this is this has been a tough stretch right now for the Cardinals as they hope to get Murray back and get Connor back. Absolutely, and you know, the guy filling in for Kyler Murray this past weekend was Clayton Toon, and he makes my list for uh, my three down as well here. Just uh, an extremely subpar performance here from the former Houston quarterback. I mean, it can't get worse than this here, Brevin, truly. It just can't. 11 of 20, 58 yards, two interceptions here, and he had a quarterback rating of 1.3. just couldn't figure things out, and uh, I, I think the Cardinals are really going to see if Murray can uh, perform well this week because they're going to need it. For me, I go from the team with the worst record in the NFC to the worst record in AFC. That's the New England Patriots, and 
I did not think that we would ever see Bill Belichick have a team with the worst record in the AFC. Well, that's what we're seeing right now. This Patriots team is right now two and seven with wins um this year. Um on the road against the Jets, that game was a fifteen ten win. And then they beat the Bills twenty nine twenty five. I think that was the first game back from Europe for the Bills, but um since then they've lost five of six, including losing this past week to the Commanders, which I'm gonna talk more about next. But it's gotten to the point where people are even asking if Bill Belichick's not not even going to be the head coach next year um, mm-hmm. in New England. Yeah, who knows? We'll have to see if that actually happens and uh, see about their future, but not looking good. Uh, another player who I think is having a down year is Geno Smith. And I think his numbers back it up, too, when you think about it. Um, last game against the Baltimore Ravens, 157 yards, no touchdowns, one interception. His uh, worst quarterback rating of the season coming in that performance. They only put up three points, 37 to three. They were just absolutely blown out. And on the season, uh, Smith has nine touchdowns and seven interceptions. So not looking like the player that he did back last season, but of course he can still turn that around. Um, I think even, even then, that yeah, would be hard to do so just because this offense hasn't looked necessarily great at times. Um, I think uh, in, in regards to their passing touchdowns, that's a number they really want to get up. Yeah. Yeah, especially for Seattle team that was right there um, on that playoff spot last year. Mm-hmm. All right. To round out my three down, one of the things that we've seen this year, and I think it was kind of highlighted here this past week, these roughing the passer penalties, I feel like they've been too lenient um, on these quarterbacks. I understand player safety but when you got Mag Jones, who's still holding the football, tucks it back into his arm and then gets sacked, but then the defender gets penalized for roughing the passer, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, you know, it's these roughing the passer plays, I don't know if it's just because they're focused on player safety, but yet these defenders, how do they get rewarded for doing their job of getting sacks and get, putting in their work and executing um, the places they have. I thought there's been some of these roughing the passer penalties this year. I felt like maybe too egregious. Um, maybe a lot more of them this year. I mean, even when just every single time a player rushes rushes a quarterback, uh, we don't know if they're gonna throw a flag for roughing the passer. I mean, yeah. we've seen a lot bigger hits in the NFL that you know in years past. Obviously, once after this rules came in, but there was definitely roughing the passer and. Uh, right. We've seen that um, this season. 100%. That's a great selection there. We saw plenty of that last mm-hmm. week. So. Okay, let's move on to our Week 10 matchups here. We are going to start with our 10 o'clock say, slate, and that is the Cleveland Browns visiting the Baltimore Ravens here in this game. Um, I'll give my pick here first, Brevin. I think Baltimore will come out on top again, and they'll improve to 8-2. I think they run the ball incredibly well. Lamar Jackson is performing at the highest level we've seen probably since his MVP campaign. He's not turning the ball over, and their defense is a lot better than it's been. That's that's a winning formula right there. Yeah, this game, uh, Ravens are 7-2, and two, Browns are 5-3. and three. Um, Obviously a big game here among the AFC North, but I still got the Ravens to win, not just being at home. I think this is 
going to be a difficult matchup for both teams. I think it's going to come down to the running game, you know, especially for, for Lamar Jackson's legs. I mean, the over-under for this game is set at 38.5. Tells you how low-scoring this game is expected to be between these two teams, um, especially within this rivalry. But uh, I've got the Ravens to secure this win and go to 8-2. and two. It's a solid pick there. I agree with you there, Brevin. Let's move on now to the San Francisco 49ers taking on the Jacksonville Jaguars in Duval. This is going to be 10 a.m. on Sunday as well. Brevin, you got a pick for this game? Yeah, I'm actually I'm going to take the team that's got the winning streak right now, and that's the Jacksonville Jaguars. They're 6-2. and two, um, Winners of, I think, four straight, I think it is, or something like that. And you got the Niners who been struggling as of late so i'm gonna take the hot hot team right now you got the jaguars coming off the bye so they've been more prepared um coming into this matchup playing at home they don't have to travel after their bye um but yeah i'm gonna take the the jags here you think about how well uh trevor lawrence has been especially over the last couple of weeks travis etn uh who we talked about among our three up just a few weeks ago and um christian kirk um leading um, in the passing game. Absolutely. I like that pick there with the Jaguars at home. I'm going to go with the Niners here. I think that they're due for a win. They're on a three-game losing streak right now. In order to figure it out, it's got to happen offensively. I think their defense will be all right, and they're going to perform how they usually do, but just uh, not trying to oversimplify anything. Just just keeping it simple if you're Brock Purdy on offense. Don't do too much and uh, let your skill guys do the work for you. I think if they get, get the ball to their guys in open space and they can make their guys make individual moves, that's all Brock Purdy has to do. Um, now it depends if they're able to do it successfully, but I'll take the Niners breaking their losing streak there. I all think, right. too, when it com- mm-hmm. yeah, I think when it comes to playoff aspirations, yeah, I think this is going to be a good benchmark to see where the Jaguars are at, you know, come later in the season when they got to take on – some of the teams that they got to face later on in the year, um, you know, when they got to face uh, Cleveland, they got to face Cincinnati, they got to face Baltimore, um, you know, through the heart of that schedule in just a few weeks. Absolutely. It's going to be a huge matchup and a resume builder as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Saints taking on the Vikings 10 o'clock game as well in Minnesota. Revan, this is an interesting matchup here. I think I'm going to go with the Saints. I think Josh puts together Mm -hmm. a good start, but I don't know. I like the way the Saints have been using Taysom Hill, and they've been mixing him in with Alvin Kamara. If they find a way to get Michael Thomas more involved too, I think that's a great start as to where this offense could potentially go in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one's tough to figure out because even without Justin Jefferson, the four games he's been out, the Vikings have won all four games. <laughs> and this is a Vikings team. They're four and one on the road this year. And so um yeah, they're five and two in conference games. This team has just figured out ways to win no matter who's who the eleven players are out on that field. This mm-hmm. one's tough to figure out because both teams, you know, have been playing well. The Saints have won their last two games, Vikings have won their last four games. I think I'm going to take the road team here. I'm going to take the Vikings here to win this game. Um, you know, without Cam Akers, you know, who we talked about earlier, um, I feel like 
Alexander Madison has the opportunity to get back on track. Um, you know, this could easily be um, either a really good defensive game or a really good offensive game um, for these for these two teams. Absolutely. Great pick there. Moving on now to our 1 o'clock window here. 105 is uh, the game time for Chargers at SoFi Stadium hosting the Detroit Lions. I got the Lions in this game, Brevin. They're the hot team, I think. And, I, I, you know, they haven't figured out on defense, you know, and they're, and they're bringing the pressure. They bring the heat, but also their offense, man. Um, they know how to control the tempo of the game. They got some good weapons. I think last week, I think if the Chargers, that Chargers game was a lot closer, I think you lean especially a lot more to the Lions. You know, Lions are coming off the bye just like the Jaguars. But this Chargers defense, they showed a lot um, in that win over the Jets. But I think I'm still going to take um, the Lions on this game. You know, you're going to have David Montgomery back, so we'll see the volume between him and Jameer Gibbs. At the running back position, this Lions team, they get another test to see where they're at, similar to where the Jags are at right now. Um, you know, this should be another good matchup here. The Lions um, coming off their win against the Raiders on Monday Night Football um, two weeks ago, fresh off the bye. Um, yeah, this should be a good game. Let's see how um, uh, Joey Bosa does. Um, against that O-line, how Aiden Hutchinson does. So a couple of good defenders, too, uh, on defense for these two teams. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I'm going to take the Lions um, in this game. So I'll pick there. All right, big game here for the Denver Broncos. They are visiting the Buffalo Bills up at Orchard Park. Monday Night Football between these two teams. Brevin, I'll let you go first. Yeah, Kyle, I'm not taking an upset here. I'm going to take the Bills here. Um, losing a tight one to Cincinnati last week, a hot team. Um, but I still think this Bills team, they come out on top Monday night football at home. I mean, it's going to be sold out for Bills Mafia. Um, I'm going to take the Bills here. Um, Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, I felt like last week was the signs where they started to turn things around after, um, them struggling after they got back from Europe. Um, we got to see the, um, Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, um, connection once again last week to get that game within six points. Um, yeah, so I've got, um, I've got the Bills here, um, in this game for Monday Night Football. Yeah, I think the the defensive numbers for Denver have been noticeably better in the past three games, but even with that in mind, I don't know if you can keep that up with the amount of talent that exists in Buffalo within that roster. Um, so I'm going to take the Bills as well. I think that they will come out strong. I mean, they're at home. That's that's all you need in prime time, right? So I think Denver falls a three and six. But I think you know in the weeks to come, they could continue to try and build close to a 500 record. I just don't know if it's going to happen in prime time on the road against a pretty solid Buffalo team who's looking to get a win because they're hungry. You think? Denver too. You think about them winning Kansas City. Does that does that anything help their chances from their win against the Chiefs a couple weeks ago? Yeah, I don't know. It's tough to say, especially because they're coming off that bye week. So mm-hmm. uh, it just depends on your preparation, how you feel, and uh, moving forward, it's just uh, I think it's a big personnel thing because now they know that they can trust some guys in the secondary 
as opposed to others who started the season that were just getting burned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to move on now from a look at week 10. We're going to look back at week nine in fantasy football. Kyle had a recorded a gritty win or gutty win over Devin Watley winning uh, 97-92 to 56.36. It's the first time this season Kyle scored less than 100 points to win a matchup, but Kyle still prevails, keeps that winning streak, keeps that lead um, in the standings, keeps that first-place lead. Um, Kyle now 8-1, and one, has a one-game lead over Daniel Guerrero. Yeah, shout-out to Devin Watley for not checking his lineup. Uh did not start a couple guys in there. So, you know what? I'll take it. Can't complain at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. And then for me, I was, I think, up by 15 and a half points entering Monday Night Football between the Chargers and the Jets. However, Jason Freund had Brees Hall. Luckily, uh, the game script was not there for Brees Hall. That included Michael Carter getting the garbage time touches. Yep. And I was able to hold on for a 121-115 victory to extend this winning streak to four and get over 500 for the first time, being a tie for third place uh, with Jason Freund, as well as um, Jack Mullet and Amber Salas, all at five and four, and three games back with Kyle for first place. Yeah, huge win for you, Brevin. I mean, that, that that's just completely massive. Your season is still alive now, and I think, you know, this upcoming week, it's going to be fantastic, man. We're facing off. Yeah, first time since week one, and uh, you're looking to keep the momentum going yourself. And I mean, I'm on the streak that I'm on, so I think it'll be really close. Yeah, you think about getting the rematch victory last week over Jason when he defeated me by a hundred points. What was that week four? I think it was. Yeah, and then now I get another rematch opportunity, losing by Kyle on the final play of Monday Night Football on that punt return touchdown by the Jets. So. We'll see how yeah. this one works. Um, we're going to see the top two wide receivers in this matchup um, who are playing this week um, in Jamar Chase and uh, Stephon Diggs. Obviously, Kyle does not have A.J. Brown because the Eagles are on a bye this week. Mm. Um, right now, I'm finalizing my quarterback decision. Who's going to start between Sam Howell or Trevor Lawrence here? Um, depending who I like. Um yeah, this should be another great matchup. I know Jamar Chase is questionable along with TJ Hawkinson. So another tight end, a big tight end matchup there between Hawkinson and Mark Andrews. Yeah, Jamar Chase questionable as well, but apparently he did practice today. So we'll see how that mm-hmm. goes and see if he ends up ultimately taking the field. But yeah, it's going to be interesting here moving forward, Brevin, because um, we're now reaching that point of the season where everyone's looking for wins. And I mean, everyone's scouring the waivers as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see. In our standings right now, Kyle, like I mentioned, eight and one for Kyle. Let's see. Uh, Kyle's, I think, magic numbers three, maybe. I think still. Yeah, something like that. Something like that to clinch a spot, and I think a win here for Kyle would lower that magic number to two, depending how Jack, Jason, and Amber do as well here. Um, but yeah, that should be. Another big matchup here this week um, in fantasy football between Kyle and I. Like I mentioned, that rematch from week one when Kyle uh, beat me. The score of that game was about 
194. Yeah, unreal. So we'll, we'll see if there's a crazy ending to this one as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to our trivia, Brevin. And uh, this is a little bit unconventional, but um, I want to hear your NFL power rankings for today's trivia. So your top five teams in the league, and I want to hear your thoughts on why as well. Yeah. Um, At, entering week 10. Entering week 10. Yeah. We're officially halfway through the year. No better time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, midway through the season. Um, I'm going to go one through five because I feel like it would be tough to figure out four or five and maybe six. But number one for me, it's a team with the only team with eight wins, the best record of the year give me the philadelphia eagles even though some of these wins have been questionable because of just whether it's the interceptions from jalen hurts um but either way this eagles team still find ways to win we saw that this past week uh against the cowboys whether you blame that on the mistakes from the cowboys or just the performance that the eagles had but i think the key to the eagles team it's not just been aj brown but the ability for Jalen Hurts to find Devontae Smith um, in that offense. We saw that this past week, catching that, I think it was a 30-yard touchdown um, in that Sunday game against the Cowboys. So, Eagles are at one. Number two, I got the Chiefs here. Um, Even though uh, Travis Kelsey was uh, contained, it just, I think it was three catches for 14 yards. It tells you how much... um, the other receivers have grown so far this season. Rasheed Rice caught another touchdown. Um, you know, we thought that was going to be a high-scoring game, too, in Germany uh, between the Chiefs and the, the Dolphins. Um, but I got the Chiefs there. That defense was really well. The defense, uh, big improvements this past week. So I got the Chiefs at two. Yeah. Um, Number three for me. This is where things start to get interesting here. Um, I'm going to go the Ravens here at three. Uh, Lamar Jackson trying to put himself in the MVP conversation helped him helped his team get to seven and two third best uh tied with the Chiefs for the best for the second best record in the NFL. All right, now this is where things start to get complicated here because I see uh, three teams with six wins between the Jags, the Lions, and the Dolphins. Yeah. Um. I'm going to take the Lions here at four. Okay. Um, you know, Jared Goff is continuing to find his receivers. It's not just Amon Ross St. Brown, but it's everyone in that offense. You know, it's like just pick a name and he's going to throw it to them and they're going to catch it. The duo of David Montgomery and Jameer Gibbs has stepped up. You know, it's uh, even in the absence of David Montgomery, we've seen Jameer Gibbs step up over the last couple of weeks. Um, that defense is solid. Uh, both uh, Eagles, Chiefs, Ravens, and Lions. Um, they're all one-loss teams on the road. Um, either with three or four wins on the road. So you're seeing them be able to not just get wins at home, but wins on the road. So yeah. I get the Lions at four. And I think number five, I'm going to go Jacksonville here. Um, oh. Winners are five straight. Um, four no on the road. Um, it just played really well. Um, 
you know, with Trevor Lawrence over the last five games, just finding ways to win, and that's been the key here. Um, you know, in the NFL, just getting wins, you know, asserting themselves um, in the AFC South. And, you know, obviously, I talked about earlier that big test against the Niners this weekend at home. Absolutely. That's a solid list there, Brevin. And just to recap, you had Eagles at number one, Chiefs number two. Ravens at number three, Lions at four, and Jags number five. So you would say at six, it would probably end up being Miami. Probably Miami. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, probably Miami. Um, just because um, Tyreek Hill is quite baller, late in the league in receiving yards right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe the Niners would be there, but they've lost three in a row since starting right. their five and zero. Oh, so that kind of hurts them right there i think another possibility for that spot i mean there's i think eight teams that are five and three i mean uh cowboys are right there they're three you know at home the Bengals have won four in a row the vikings have won four in a row at five and four um yeah so i think those are some of the teams that were just left out um right yeah so and we talked about the saints and the bills um as well within our Week 10 slate. Absolutely. Solid list there, Brevin. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see if uh, any of these teams are upset this upcoming weekend, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. That's pretty much going to do it for this week here on Down the Line. Uh, I know the Silver Sugar winners were announced while we were recording. We're going to go over those next week on top of our BBWAA awards. We're going to talk more NFL. Week 11 of the NFL season, how Kyle and I's matchup do against one another, that first, uh, that second matchup of the year, the first chance week one, uh, when Kyle defeated you by six points. Kyle's coming off. Uh, got the edge here in terms of last week, in terms of scoring, a 21-point edge on Kyle, but we'll see how this week goes. Um, another week of college basketball, uh, the NBA. Um, so it should be another fun week here of sports here so that's going to do it for us here on down line for cowbets i'm brevin hunter we thank you for listening this week and we hope you tune in to another edition of down line next week